I'm Morgan. I'm Isabeau. And this is Romance. A podcast about romance novels. About espionage. About extrajudicial killing. About CIA, but make it private industry. About weird boat trips. About intellectual diversity. About all the ways in which women are forced to be caregivers. About institutionalized torture. About car chases. About the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. But mostly about first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, we're reading Nothing to Fear by Juno Rushton. A final hour novel. By Sourcebooks. All right, back of the book. Lives are on the line. National security is at risk. The clock is ticking. Fearsome, gray box operative Gideon Stone is devoted to his work and his team. He's never given reason to doubt his loyalty until he's tasked with investigating Willow Harper, a beguiling cryptologist suspected of selling deadly bioagents on the black market. That's cool that her job title is cryptologist. I like that too. He knows she's innocent. He knows she's being framed. And he knows that without him, Willow will be dead before sunrise. I'm still (laughs) reading the back of the book. I I was like, oh, he does. Like right away, he assumes that she's innocent. Thrust into the crossfire of an insidious international conspiracy, Gideon will do anything to keep Willow safe, even if that means waging war against his own. With time running out, an unlikely bond pushes the limits and forges loyalties. Every move they make counts, and the real traitor is always watching. Pace, spine tingling thriller you won't want to put down, says Laura Griffin, <laughs> New York Times bestselling author of Every Last Breath. Okay. That's the back of the book. I'm peeling off the price tag. We purchased this at Love Sweet Arrow, right? The mother daughter team in Tinley Park that is independently retailing romance books for the Chicagoland area. And they're still mailing books, so you can still order from them online. Mm-hmm. Isabel, why did you choose this book? Did someone recommend it or did you just hear about it? I didn't even hear about it. I picked this book up because I knew the author was an author of color and somebody had said, oh, if you're trying to diversify your catalog, you should pick this up. Also, we had never on the show really done a thriller thriller romance. So I was like, here's an opportunity to do that. You know, I think that's interesting. I thought a lot about Wild Orchids when we were reading this, when I was reading this. Also, Romancing the Stone. Yes. Which we talked about about last week. Honestly, the thing that it evoked for me the most was the best Bourne movie, which doesn't actually have Matt Damon in it. It's the one with Jeremy Runner and Rachel Weisz. It's called Born Legacy. Came out in 2012. It is the best born. That is a hill I will die on, frankly. Because I didn't like this book at first. I would say it took me a while to get into it. But like once it made the shift in my mind where it's like Jeremy Renner and Rachel Weisz, I was like, oh my God, I fucking love it. Why is that the best born movie? It has the best character development. It also has Rachel Weisz in it and she's a goddamn goddess. And the story itself, I think, is the most interesting because the premise is that it was a whole government op and Jeremy Renner's character discovers this and like wants to turn himself off kind of like born but not for the same reasons just that kind of conspiracy where it's like what does it take to figure yourself out with someone else was great and Rachel Weisz is an Oscar winner and brought a lot of graveta to what would have been a pretty mediocre sequel Oscars but, um, aren't actually a measure of quality that's true I think she's just quality and Never she brought the green book also won an Oscar oh fuck that is terrible news so for Best Picture, Ugh. which, by the way, the same guys who made Shallow Hal made Green Book. And yeah. I haven't seen Green Book, but I did hear that they don't actually talk about what the Green Book was. That is true. In the movie. For, yeah, it's real weird that way. Uh, but they do talk a lot about fried chicken. And so that's what Rachel Weiss is also. She won for The Constant Gardener, right? She did. Also not a movie that really held up. You know, I haven't seen The Constant Gardener in a long time. Um, She is a fabulous actress, though. She is. She's just outstanding. And even when she does what I would consider or what other people would consider, like, paycheck films, she's just fucking outstanding in them. And she and Jeremy Renner, like, were a very believable couple. It also was much more romantic than any of the other Bourne movies, which was a genuine surprise Mm. when I saw it. And I'm always happy to be surprised in an action thriller, because otherwise, I mean, they're pretty formulaic. They're pretty wrote 
So to have a genuine surprise is always nice. I don't really enjoy Jeremy Renner. And it's because I picture his fandom as being people who wear affliction t-shirts. I think that's right. He was in a movie about Jeffrey Dahmer. And I think mm-hmm. that was actually took place like during the murders. And I think as far as like serial killer movies, that one was pretty good. I haven't seen the Golden Gloves or whatever, but I do want to see it. Anyways, it has been a while since I watched a serial killer fictionalized movie. But I remember Jeremy Renner did a really uh, nice job. I think he's like a fine actor. And I think you're right about his fandom. I think you're also probably right about him. Like, Oh, he also he has would- that music that he puts out. Yeah, exactly. Like, there is something really banally nasty about Jeremy Renner Potato mm-hmm. Face. Yeah. But, like, he's also in movies that I have enjoyed, like Don't Kill the Messenger, um, about the reporter who figured out that the U.S. government had been dumping crack cocaine in inner cities. I mean, he was fabulous in that. And he was like, great I, in The Hurt Locker. Like, that's the thing, is, like, I have no reason to dislike. Like, he's a great character actor, to be honest. Exactly. It's just like there's something about him that strikes me as like a little like the mean kind of bro, like the bro that is definitely like the rapey bro. Yes, for sure. Do you remember whenever it came out that Courtney Stodden was dating Doug Hutchinson, who was another like really great American character actor. And then it turned out that he was providing like online acting lessons to this 14 year old with breast implants. And then they got married. Yeah. Why are, to be honest, like the greatest performance an American character actor does is that they're not capable of that kind of thing. I feel like everything I talk about now, I feel like I was always a downer before, like famously a downer. But I feel like with everything going on, I've become hyper conscious of it. I think the thing that's really changed, not so much that I ever would have attributed you to being a downer. Mm. It's because you delivered downer facts with like such... Pep. Yeah. Not unlike a Decemberist song. Oh, we're singing about a double suicide with this backbeat? Huh. <laughs> a touch of whimsy. Yes. Yes. That is how I would describe it. Like you, you, like you genuinely deliver these really weird, sad facts with such a touch of whimsy. I don't realize that I'm sad or down until much later, until I'm thinking about about the fact that you have just like put before me and I'm like oh when the fact calcifies in your gut yeah it's like that it's like that and so now it's like there's just less room for whimsy right now yeah I think that's true I feel so seen by that which actually does take me back to nothing to fear by Juno (laughs) Rushton So, okay. so how do, what do you want to talk about, Isabeau? Because I'm going to be honest, mm-hmm. I liked it. I did too. And I think I want to start there because like I said at yeah. the outset, I really didn't like the beginning of this book. And I think no. it's because it's really complicated and there are like way too many characters are introduced. And like, to be fair, this is the second novel in the series. So we are yeah. coming in right at the beginning. But like, there's just, and also, I don't know. It could be setting stuff up for other books. Totally. Like there was and one fact that set up early in the book. There was an additional sniper positioned on the top landing overlooking the entire main floor of the building that the gray box is in. Sounds like a website for octogenarian pornography. <laughs> right? Oh my God. Gray so there's box. that. There's an additional sniper positioned on the top landing. And I remember noting, like, I really hope this pays off because structurally it'll be a problem. It is truly a gun that is shown to us in the first act and doesn't go off ever. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's set up to many people. I thought maybe my problem with it is that like I don't read spy novels. Like I don't read Tom mm-hmm. Clancy. But you look mm-hmm. at how big those books are. And honestly, this is a long one. Yeah. This is 441 pages. It is long. And I think like honestly, there's a bunch in the beginning that I think could have been trimmed or like functioned out. So like the real cardinal sin and like I end up getting an online copy as well because I wanted to point out this stuff that was really bothering me. It's like so gimmicky in the beginning. So it's like ignorant psychopath. Novak thought he was going to receive a get out of jail free card in the morning. Instead, he was getting an express ticket straight to hell. Took one sloppy second to get caught. Was impossible to walk this tightrope forever. That's all in one paragraph. okay? and like that's kind of how I would say the first 20 percent functions as like this very weird contemporary like Bogart sort of one liner after one liner after one liner. But it's not like characters are delivering one liners. It's like the narrative itself is doing that. 
that? And yeah, I was like, the narrative oh my God. is delivering one-liners about the characters. That's exactly right. And I was like, I hate this. I absolutely. I really also didn't like it. I was constantly confused because they have both first names and last names, and they refer to them as either by their first right. name exclusively or their last name exclusively. There's this guy Daniel Cutter who's in like the mm-hmm. first twenty pages. He doesn't show back up until like the last five. <laughs> They're like sitting around a round table, and it's definitely like Justice League type shit where they're totally here we are being our characters but perhaps it's because I came to just really enjoy this book so much later on that in hindsight I'm like well maybe this is a problem of genre melding I don't read those spy novels really I don't read intrigue and thrillers Mm -hmm. very often and maybe that's just how they work like you have to do all of this work in the beginning. Maybe. But I don't either as I'm, a reader of romance novels, which is all we can be. Right. And I like I'm perfectly happy to be like honest to god this part wasn't for me but like even as a casual reader I was like oh, this could have been better do you have an example of a one liner about a character I'm trying to find one sure there was something wholesome yet complex about Willow oh yeah wholesome yet complex <laughs> Oh, so Sybil, who's like one of our antagonists of our dad figure, who is Sanborn, who is the like mm-hmm. CEO of this private government op, who's CEO of graybox.com. She says, watch yourself. Sybil shifted her weight from one hip to the other, balancing on her killer three inch heels. Contempt yeah. set her brown eyes ablaze. It was another one of those situations where I was like, oh no, I really like the bad person. Yeah. I will go balls to the walls with you. We may... <laughs> We may have once had a relationship, but I will do everything I can to see you prosecuted if you fail to follow procedure and lock up the traitor. That is so much exposition and it is so clunky in dialogue. But it was stuff like that. But this book, man, when it hits its stride, party, party, party. Exactly. And like once it gets out of like this thing where it's like if this were like a spy TV show, it would be like voiceover or like whatever it was. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It was like the exposition position was so clunky and for me the exit out of it was when Willow is leaving and when it really made the first turn because she's leaving for the day I like the introduction of her as a neuro non-typical I thought was actually very nice where like we're deep in Willow's head yeah and she's like how do I exit a conversation I don't want to be in I have this schedule that I need to maintain like I have to maintain it I'm feeling more and more uncomfortable that people are stopping me like that I thought that was actually pretty deftly done I thought and it then, was also like a portrayal of that kind of thing that sparks empathy rather than like yeah. pity like I really yeah. felt it like I felt the anxiety I felt uncomfortable in my own clothes like the description was so vivid and so non-judgmental yeah and it didn't lead with hey my name's Willow and I'm neuro non-typical and my clothes feel uncomfortable it started with my clothes feel uncomfortable yeah and then we slowly got to the point where we discovered that she's diagnosed ASD mm-hmm. I thought that was really well done and then like where this book really started cooking with gas is when her breaks are cut and she's on the freeway. Yeah. <laughs> and like Gideon Stone is following her in his like fucking Jeep Wrangler or whatever. And she's in like an adorable vintage Volkswagen bug. She's like, oh man, my brakes aren't there. What's going to happen? What am I going to do? And like, she's incredibly competent, which is also very nice. And like all the while Gideon's behind her like, get off the road. I loved it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, all right. Fastening my seatbelt. I'm in for a ride. Crashes and directs her to the parking lot. Yeah, that first car chase scene was pretty riveting. Mm-hmm. I tend to skip past stuff that isn't like romance related but this book I was (laughs) I was riveted by all of the action scenes but another thing that I think was really significant for me when I was reading this is that even in those action scenes it's not like inserted into a romance Mm -hmm. the relationship itself is carried through all of these action scenes and is a motivator Mm -hmm. and further those action scenes actually serve to propel the romance forward Mm -hmm. so it was one of those situations where it was really clear that this is a romance novel. It's not a thriller that has romantic elements or even a romance that has thriller elements. Like it truly is this really cohesive melding Mm -hmm. and utilization of of a different toolbox to tell a romantic story. No, I mean, I totally agree. And like that was one of the scenes where, you know, she had seen him around the office, but then there's like this thing on the highway with this car chase. And then like he takes him. She like stalked his files. Yeah. And then like, because he has to 
take her home because her car's fucked. And then he's immediately introduced to her home situation, which makes her incredibly uncomfortable, but also like sort of open to it because they've had this harrowing experience. So like, you're exactly right. Like this is such a clever braiding of two genres together to feed the other. I thought it was highly enjoyable. I thought it was really smart in all the ways that it did that. One of the things I really enjoy in books like this is kind of like the insider information. Mm -hmm. And Juno Rushton is a former military intelligence officer. So I knew that fact. And so I was just like psyched. I was like psyched out of my mind to get those like little, little survival tips and things like that. And I didn't really learn anything new. And so I'm kind of worried that I already have all of the knowledge I need to survive a violent situation. And I've got to be honest, I do not feel safe. Quantico is going to come recruiting. Like you've just outed yourself as like uh, somebody who'd be an analyst, Morgan. Like Quantico, I know how to tell if someone's a tourist by their shoes already. (laughs) But like, honestly, if I had read Nothing to Fear by Juno Rushton, I would have all the tools I needed. Yeah, that seems right. So yeah, so I want to talk about our heroine's dad, actually. Okay. And I feel like this book does have a lot of character growth. So we're kind of Mm -hmm. introduced to like really Baroque villains in the very beginning. The only one who doesn't really get redeemed is Sybil. But we even get a redemption for our double agent, our mole. We also get a redemption for our heroine's me and older sister, who is really cruelly handled. But through the perspective of our villain, our villains are kind of redeemed. They realize that they too are in love with each other truly and that I thought that was an interesting factor yeah in the final I thought that was such a cool move I did too and like what an interesting way to like redeem like truly heinous characters who've already done pretty heinous things on the page and it's like love really can do a lot well and their relationship is introduced as like this guy Omega who's like the mm-hmm. second to Daedalus is drinking a wheatgrass shot because Daedalus yep. says it makes his cum taste better yeah and I was like whoa <laughs> yeah I'm like <laughs> whoa. this is not the book I thought I was in. So like initially you're like, oh, like they have this super like hypersexual, hyper aggressive relationship. It's also a gay relationship and it kind of gets presented in kind of this icky way in contrast to our central romance, which is between Mm -hmm. the two most whimsically named secret ops people ever, Gideon Stone and Willow Harper, ethereally named, I should say. And so we're like, oh, that's gross. It made me feel uncomfortable that they were like, you know, presenting in that way but then by the end of the book it's like Daedalus is like whatever happens is going to be meaningless to me if I don't have you by my side and I was like whoa and he's like it took me all this time to realize this like you're my number one it was really sweet and clever and well done Um, I thought so too yeah but her dad gets this redemption so he's like a total asshole you get the sense that she's in an abusive relationship with her father and he does he like in the first part of the book Gideon is assigned to to research Willow because she's a suspect as the mole and so he has to get close to her. And because she's a neuro non-typical, she is a bit of an outsider at work even though she's really high ranking and really accomplished. And a lot of the mole stuff is kind of related to technology and the stuff that she's been doing. So Totally. And, he and she's volunteers. actually being set up as the patsy. Exactly. And he volunteers because he's so attracted to her and he right. can't stand the thought of anyone else trying to get close to her the other rep scallions in the like agent round table where this gets mm-hmm. assigned are like ooh I guess I could try to get close to that little ice cube that hot little ice cube I guess <laughs> And Gideon's like, no, no, only me. Me in that hot little ice cube. And so he gets close to her, but he notices she has an injury on her face and eventually learns that it's because her father threw a plate at her face. Mm-hmm. Her dad's really mean and short with her. Gideon actually utilizes and exploits their contentious relationship in order to get to her room to read her diary where mm-hmm. all supervillains keep their secrets. Yeah. (laughs) And anyways, but then at the end, we get this redemption arc, but it's entirely our heroine's perspective. And we discover that she was, you know, to her sisters, she was the favorite daughter and that her dad always stood up for her. And she describes him as her best friend. Like the intensity of the relationships, I think, can get ratcheted up in a way that feels unearned. Like at one point, this might just be a case of me being confused, but Doc, the like analyst or whatever, is 
Maddox, who I think was the heroine of the first novel, she's assigned to her to analyze as like a potential mole. I remember at one point, Stanborn, who's the boss, was like, oh, I guess Maddox is pretending to be her friend in order to get information because Doc is like, Maddox is a real girl's girl. And Stanborn's like, I don't think so. And then like at the end, it was like, she is the godmother of my son. She is my best friend. And she betrayed. I don't know if that was just a case of me getting confused or the book getting confused. Oh, Doc and the mole are different. No, you're right. Doc and the mole are different people. No, no, the mole is Doc. Oh, shit. Sorry to spoil the... Okay, because then I got confused. I definitely thought... No, I think that's worth leaving in is like the big reveal of the book is confusing. <laughs> and so it doesn't really have the same payoff. Like I was very Yeah, it confident. totally didn't. Like they do have a moment where they're like, blah, blah. But the names are so confused. Like in addition to being like having this nickname of Doc, this character also has a first and last name I can't recall. And right. gets referred to by both her first and last name. Yeah. Another detail I remember about her is that she has a flirtation with Sanborn and he... He's, she does. He's relieved she doesn't smell like patchouli, even though she looks like a hippie. And I'm just yeah. going to say, don't trust anyone who looks like a hippie and doesn't smell like patchouli because they're fucking hiding something. They're playing a part. Yeah. So it was stuff like that. So where it's like, how would Sanborn not know that Maddox and Doc were close? Yeah. Like that. And like the fact that her son had this terrible cancer and needed the special trial. Like the fact that nobody was putting that shit together was really weird. Yeah. And then this like flirtation with Sanborn. I got, I had them so confused. I I definitely thought they were too. Jean, who's Sanborn's personal assistant who bakes all the time, is also in a relationship with Sybil's personal assistant. (laughs) Which I loved. And then like, that was a fun scene, but also doesn't go anywhere. And also doesn't go anywhere in the series, it looks like. Because I tried to find out if that was one of the books and it's I totally would have read that. But also, like, Sanborn reveals himself to be kind of shitty because, like, his assistant is 15 years older than Sybil's assistant. And he's like, ugh, cougar. But it's like, he's 25 years older than Doc. And then it's like, well... Well, that dialogue, that internal dialogue in that moment is actually her, Jean, saying that she would have been embarrassed to tell him. And he's saying he didn't even realize the age difference. And then his internal thing being like, I would be a hypocrite if I thought that. There's a bigger age difference between me and Doc. But like, if you're thinking, oh, I would be a hypocrite if I thought that, like you are, like you're quietly to yourself a hypocrite, which makes you better than an out loud hypocrite. But you're already thinking that way. And you need to interrogate a little bit more. Right. Like Jean was right to be worried. I mean, it didn't come from nowhere. You know what I mean? And also culturally, we frown on that. That would have been cool if that was a book. Yeah, it would have been. Juno rushed in, make a book. I don't know what happens with Sybil's assistant in future texts. So maybe that's not possible. So yeah, so what about our our hero? Emily. That's why I got them confused. Emily. Emily is Doc. (laughs) Right. Our hero, Gideon Stone. Gideon's deep dark tragedy is that he was basically an orphan and his mom sucked and then he was sort of accidentally on purpose fostered by a CIA agent. I know. He was raised to become what he is. Black site torturer for the CIA. We learn in the first 25 pages that, and this is actually through the perspective of Willow, that he has bitten out a suspect's jugular. Yeah, he bit out an artery. He bit out an artery. And like, I read that and I like put the book down. I was like, what the fuck am I reading? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know how this book did it because it is like the grossest parts of the military industrial complex and it's very literally the military industrial complex. Very literally. There's a torture scene where a guy gets his kneecap drilled in by the hero on a private jet. Think about that for a second. Is there anything that is more antithetical to what Isabeau and I like than a private industry (laughs) intelligence and enforcement for the government and like all of their motivations are understood as patriotic and it's like well not really like they're not really a part of the government you know but they are because they're private but then at the end there's like this huge criticism of the US government because we're the ones developing the illegal smallpox bioweapon and they're like yeah Yeah. well that's part of it we always know the US government is evil and it's like well is that supposed to mean that like a private industry is a moral check on the government operations because a guy just got his kneecap drilled 
settled in on a private jet. On a private jet. Also, like, the DOD is constantly threatening to shut down, like, Sanborn's uber patriotic gray box. But, like, I guess that's the magic of this narrative where it's like... Yeah, all of the ickiest parts are there. Like, there's nothing that this book isn't conscious of, I don't think, being icky. Nothing it doesn't present as icky. I think it's the fact that I just believe that the characters believe this. Not only did I believe that the characters believed it, but, like, I also believe that they felt bad and they were definitely of the school of I am a dark creature made darker by the choices I make to make more people safe. It's definitely like the needs of the few will never outweigh the needs of the many. That kind of pathos through the lens of the military industrial complex, but especially this black site stuff is usually really, really gross. And it is gross in the book, but somehow like the pathos of it is like so earnestly believable. It's like hard not to be swept away by it, which is gross, but also like I was swept away. See, I wouldn't say I was swept away. I was just willing to forgive the characters. And I think Mm. it's because I think the book is aware that mm-hmm. it's ucky stuff. Like, there's this part where <laughs> our hero, Gideon Stone, who is committed torture, the heroine, like, stays in the room for that and then leaves yeah. to go to the bathroom. And he's like, I bet she's throwing up in there. And I'm like, I bet she is too. That's really yep, fucked that's up. Definitely like, what I would be doing. He himself has, like, weird fingernails because they were pulled off in torture. Mm-hmm. And she, like, kisses them the night before when they're spooning and the windows mm-hmm. are open, which is significant because that's dangerous. But he's, like, pulling fingernails nails off of somebody putting like I think a drill bit into somebody's kneecap on a plane in order to extract information that's the thing is like the book is like physical torture doesn't work Willow doing research and working hard is what finds the actual mole she uncovers the mole and so you're like oh wow he committed this intense act of cruelty against another human being for nothing an atrocity an atrocity and then in his mind he's like Willow is gonna be scared of me she -hmm. doesn't like me anymore Mm -hmm. she's grossed out I'm a monster and I'm like Mm -hmm. yeah man you are like you have sold your soul for your work yeah and then Willow comes out and she's like I was scared for you and I was like bitch she was holding the drill I know and she says like the thought of you having to heal from those wounds that you commit for your country for the greater good and I was like except it wasn't for the greater good and I think the book is aware that it's not for the greater good but is also aware that when you go into like this line of work, you have to do a lot of gymnastics to get through it. Mm -hmm. And so our heroine being empathetic to that is a big deal. But I don't think any value is put on Gideon's worldview. And I don't think any value is put on Willow's worldview either. It's just like, this is how these people think. I mean, the only value put on that worldview is that they're better romantic partners for each other than Gideon's erstwhile dead first wife, right? Because he can't tell her anything. She wouldn't understand it. He's so deeply afraid that he'll be reviled for the monster that he believes himself to be because of the the choices of violence that he makes. Also, the redemption arc of his dead ex-wife, which is like dead ex-wife, but she died in a car accident with another man and his pants were down and her seatbelt was off. So she was filleting another man (laughs) when she died in a car accident with him. And this is one of those situations where at the beginning of the novel, she's a really two-dimensional character who's not even there, right? right? She cheated on him. She was never grateful. She never understood him. She had only ever wanted him to be a pro football player and he decided to go to the CIA instead and that was her big disappointment in life and then at the end of the book we get a flashback of one of their arguments where he bought her a jeep and she said this isn't the car I wanted you're always making choices for me yeah and his initial reaction is to be like oh you want like an impractical sports car but I know what's best for you and she's like Mm -hmm. you never let me make the choices I want I had chosen a different life and then you went off to become a CIA agent you never talked to me about it and he has this oh, I'm the asshole moment. After he tells Willow that they can't be together, he has this flashback of this fight with his wife and he has a moment of clarity like, oh, I'm the asshole. Mm -hmm. Which I thought was, for me, far more satisfying than any of the elaborate speeches that could have happened. 
I mean, I totally agree. And I think that's one of like the unheralded important things that romance really does. And I think it always comes into focus for me when you say that like the simple getting through, like having a romance, like Heartbeat Braves, where it's like nothing dramatic happens. Nobody's struck by lightning. Like the carriage doesn't overturn. It's just two people like struggling to make a life together. And like that's worthy of a novel in and of itself. And like, I think one of the things that romance does really well when it does it well is like watching the main character's perspective shift towards more empathy. And like, that's exactly what this is. The narrative is so hard on his dead wife about this other person. But like throughout all of that, like the fact that it's just that thing, right, where he re-remembers the fight, because that's not the first time that we have that flashback of that fight. It's the second. And like having it twice and having it through his view is so important because it's like it's just that where it finally it really just clicks where like that expansion of perspective out of self and into other is so deftly done and then like he gets to change right he gets to stop making choices for others I think this romance novel is doing something you're right that a lot of romance novels do which is showing a character gaining empathy what I think is remarkable just from what we've read for the show is that this book does that while fully realizing a character, another character who was otherwise Mm -hmm. a villain. And by doing that, recognizing that like everyone's the hero in their own story, right? Yeah. And acknowledging that in a romance novel is so remarkable because structurally you have a hero and a heroine and Mm -hmm. so many romance novels completely zero in on that and people aren't fully realized. And we get even a a, like an unfaithful dead wife Mm -hmm. (laughs) becomes this fully realized person who has struggled with a relationship. And I think it does a thing where it also shows sometimes getting through his end something. Yeah. Like it really gives him the right to move on without being like, because she was a slut. Mm -hmm. It's like, it gives him the right to move on because they weren't for each other. Right. And he's met someone else who is for him. So he's able to move on. And you're right. I totally forgot that this is the second time this scene is remembered. But the first time was him explaining it to his romantic interest, Willow, which is really him trying to present his best self. Right. Oh, I just love that. I love that fact. This book does so much cool shit. Yeah, it's never seen before. Right. And I think like that's what's so actually remarkable about this book. And like just that, like something so simple as like the repetition, but like the details being slightly different. Mm -hmm. And like it's because of your expanded perspective. So there's all of that. And then there's also (laughs) the drill bit to the kneecap and like the idea that a person could bite out another's jugular. Um, And also just like offshore banking and how corrupt it is. Oh my God. um, The fact that the U.S. government has developed a bioweapon using smallpox. Oh my God. But on top of all of that, this book is just like a rollicking fun ride. Like when they like go Mm -hmm. to like this really fancy part of DC to like steal a boat, even all of those scenes of stealing the boat and like getting on. And like, there's this scene where he's at like Walmart trying to pick out clothes for her. And like, he has this whole thing about like trying to guess her shoe size. And then like, he gets the clothes wrong because he doesn't know about, like he knows about her being neuro-non-typical, but like didn't figure out the clothes thing. And then she's like, I'm just going to be naked until I have to put on clothes. Which is about, that's the other thing. Like this romance novel does things that I've never seen in a romance novel before that were so fucking satisfying. I felt elated by them. But it also does all of the shit that's really great. And romances that are my particular tipple. And I am talking about a boat journey. (laughs) A naked boat journey. I love a naked boat journey. And like whenever he was buying her those shitty poly blend dresses at the Walmart and then also looking so fun just to read the scene of him trying to find a boat to steal. Oh my I was god. like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, there's gonna be a naked boat. There's gonna be a naked boat journey. Oh my god. The boat journey was so good. They like boat into a hurricane oh of my all things. Gosh. Whenever I got to that scene, I actually gasped out loud whenever she brought him a life vest and almost went overboard. I know. It was so thrilling. It was truly so thrilling to read. It really was. Whenever they get off the boat and they go to the hotel and he's mm-hmm. trying to be like very mission focused and he's like we can't go to the restaurant and you have to close the windows and you can't call your sister and she's like I need to do all of these things what I really need is a walk can I please just go to the restaurant yeah. rang very true for our current condition because she was like I was just on a boat for four days with you without clothes you know <laughs> we'll sit in the back it'll be fine yeah I loved the boat journey obviously oh, 
so good. And like the scene in the hurricane was so good. Whenever they go to the bank and her whole plan starts to unfold in front of us that we know she set up, I was, it was like sitting in a bank office. It was doing that thing that's really fun in like Mission Impossible movies. Mm -hmm. When you're like, oh my God. Even though all he's doing is like walking around an art gallery. Yeah. (laughs) It was that thrilling. And then whenever the guy goes to talk to his boss, I'm like, oh my God, no. I know. It's like, it's jig is up, baby. Yeah. And they have that fight scene. Oh my God, that shootout in the clothing store. So good. You know, I've seen little versions of in movies, but it felt so fresh in this book. This is the thing is like, it reminds me, and possibly because I brought this up as a double feature on our Instagram, which was to read the last book we talked about, Not Mm -hmm. the Girl You Marry, in conjunction with Debbie Maycomber's Morning Come Softly, which is the point I wanted to make, Mm -hmm. was that being humane to all of your characters can elevate any text into something Mm -hmm. truly special. And I think that's what Juno Rushton does. Mm -hmm. And in addition to being really great at writing an action scene. Mm -hmm. And so all of the other stuff that makes me feel icky is okay with me. Yeah, it's like honestly undone. And I think this is why it had such strong vibes of the Born Legacy, because that was like truly a welcome surprise of a movie. And as we're talking about it, like the fun shootout stuff also really reminds me of the action rom-com Night and Day with Cameron Diaz and Tom Cruise. And that movie is crazy because Tom Cruise is like constantly drugging Cameron Diaz. So there are these weird blackouts all the time. So and that's like movie- a retelling of Vanilla Sky. <laughs> I mean, kind of, but like the thing about it is... it sounds like it. Part of why that movie works so well as both an action flick and a rom-com is because... Cameron Diaz is amazing in it. But the thing that was happening at that moment was Tom Cruise had just jumped on Oprah's couch. So Cameron Diaz is like the normal person and she's like abducted into this world of like, you know, black ops and intrigue by Tom Cruise. And she's constantly like, is he crazy? Is he crazy? Which felt so meta at the time because it's like, is Tom Cruise really crazy? He jumped on Oprah's couch and he said some weird fucked up shit about Brooke Shields, but like, is he crazy? And so like to have an outside moment in form of film like that was so weirdly charming and I've never seen lightning strike like that again I don't think. You might be the only person who likes night and day to be honest. I'm not the only person who likes night and day. (laughs) I think you might be outside of the general consensus on night and day. Um, I think you should watch it again. I did not watch night and day. I don't. uh, Cameron Diaz is amazing in it. 6 out of 10 on IMDb. That's not even that bad. We've got a 52% on on Rotten Tomatoes. Again, middling. Yeah, middling. (laughs) I think middling is exactly right. And this book is not middling. And like, I think the reason why I ended up liking it so much is because I was genuinely surprised. I was genuinely surprised by how tight the action scenes were. I was genuinely surprised by the complexity of the world building in a way that I think is easily accessible because it pulls on things that we know a lot about already and is already in media a ton, but it still felt fresh it still felt fun like even the Avengers assemble scene at the beginning like that did not feel fresh and fun no but like when we came back to it at the end I wasn't mad about it and I think like that kind of stuff is actually really remarkable where it's like that this book could feel like such trash at the beginning and like really rescue itself by the end where I I really like it (laughs) for me it's like I really like it but there is stuff that like is not good like is bad I can't sort out the characters I'm still not sure what the ending resolution was with the mission. Yeah. I probably couldn't explain the plot. It's very convoluted, but I guess you want that in this kind of novel. But overall, I liked it. Let's get to sexiest part. Sure. Or should we start with weirdest part? I don't care. Whatever. Let's start with weirdest part. Hey gang, Morgan here, letting you know this episode of Womance is brought to you by Into Her by J.A. Huff, available now on audible.com. The three perspectives of this angsty MFM page-turning read are brought to life with the vocal talents of Savannah Peachwood, Teddy Hamilton, and Tad Branson. Those three sound like they could be characters in a romance novel themselves. They bring to life the story of Into Her. Hitmen, AJ, and Logan are professional mobsters and spending a sexy night stranded with their mark, Yvette wasn't in the plan. But one night changes everything and they soon find themselves plotting away out of the job and the mob. It sounds like crossover fic from 
from True Life, I'm Polly Amorous, and The Sopranos. Totally thrilling. Author J.A. Huss has hit the USA Today bestsellers list 21 times in the past five years, and her audiobooks have been nominated for a voice arts and an audio award, so you know you want to experience her work via her audiobook available at audible.com. But don't just take it from those well-respected institutions, take it from readers just like you. One Amazon review says, just when you think you know exactly what to expect from J.A. Huss, she proves that you know absolutely nothing, all caps, exclamation point. She told us what it was about, kinda. And assumptions were made, and in every single way, I was absolutely wrong in the most delightful, frightened, turned on way. Ha cha cha. Delightful, frightening, and sexy. Sounds like a total woe. So be sure to go to audible.com and pick up Into Her by J.A. Huss. Mwah! My weirdest part was the sisters, I think, how badly they were treated in the narrative to start and like also how mean they are. I mean, it is through Willow's perspective, but like the older sister is potentially like dealing with an infidelity in her marriage, has twins who are six, is also like extremely petite bourgeoisie. She's like, I'll have my au pair come take care of dad. And like Willow's like, you can't have your au pair do it. You have to do it. You've never asked you for anything in my life. Even after mom died. Yeah, I was like, this sucks. To kind of talk more about the sister. So we're introduced to the au pair through Willow's perspective. Mm -hmm. Whenever her sister says, I'll send the au pair to take care of dad, she's trained in all this stuff. And Willow is like, dad doesn't like her. And she remembers this time that her father met her and is like, starts immediately saying like, your husband's going to sleep with her Mm -hmm. and he's going to leave you for her. And that being a reason to fire someone still feels weird to me. Yeah, totally. (laughs) But like, I get it because it's like bringing someone into your home who's going to ultimately cause a chasm isn't their fault. But then Willow seems indifferent to the au pair is like she couldn't imagine her father being with that vibrant woman. And at that point it felt like there was a narrative break where the author or the text's empathy for all characters does Mm -hmm. not coincide well with the actual character perspective. Because I don't think Willow would be like, you can't send that vivacious, spicy woman to help our father. Like that doesn't really make sense. She started off being like, dad hates her. And that makes sense because dad's probably a misogynist. Right. So that works out. But the fact that Willow would also then be like, that vibrant woman, I was like, I don't think so. Right. And then we find out Laurel's husband is in fact having an affair with the au pair because when the villain goes to kidnap her, she's having a cell phone conversation with her husband and she's like, the twins have seen you kiss her twice. I don't think they would lie about it twice. Yeah. Or misinterpret it twice. And it's like, oh, Laurel, that sucks. It super sucks. And then she gets kidnapped. It's like a one-two punch. And I'm like, I don't think Laurel's been that bad. But she does an elaborate <sighs> apology to Willow at the end. And I kind of wish Willow would have... Apologized. Apologized. Just because, like, you can be as mad as you want about your sister not helping you out when your mom died. But what did you do for her? Yeah, exactly. Like, it was her mom, too. Willow. Yeah. I mean, I felt that way. And, like, that's why it's my weirdest part. I was like, this feels underdone. It certainly does. Sisters are such a fraught space. I think probably IRL. I don't have a sister. I'm grateful every day that I don't have a sister. I don't think I would have done well with that relationship. But sisters feel like for me, and perhaps it's because I don't have one, the most fraught of all familial relations. I think sister and sister. I mean, as somebody with a sister who is extremely close, I like can't imagine my life without her. And I think part of the reason why we don't fall into what I would call like a Hollywoodization or even like other romance novels because I think the sister relationship is fraught and like is sort of a distillation or like a really fruitful place to investigate how women are forced to compete against one another by society for all sorts of things and like the sister bond is a really good place to like localize that and then like blow it up because like you're competing for mom and dad's love especially in historicals you guys are competing you know on the marriage I think we see a lot of sister competitions in media because it's a kind of shorthand for how misogyny and patriarchy pit women against one another. As someone with a very loving relationship with my sister, I like I don't find that to be true. Like, okay, I think and like of women that I know who have sisters, I don't think that they have found it to be true, and certainly not all the time, and certainly not like the way that it looks. Especially because women are expected to be caregivers a lot. I think that's also one of the things that was interesting to me about the sister relationship 
Shapir because it was a failure <laughs> rather than a competition. I think saying that it's all a Hollywoodization is not acknowledging that it is a unique relationship. In yeah, but I life. don't think and it's... that Hollywood, I don't think would have created it out of nothing. Sure. But I don't think it's the most fraught familial relationship there is. What do you think is the most fraught familial relationship? Mothers and daughters. Really? Yeah. And why is that? Uh, why, well, or why do you think it's more fraught than a sister sister relationship? Because I think all the things that I'm bringing up about how like this sister relationship, especially in media, can be a real shorthand for like the way that women harm one another. I think that a generational thing just adds stakes and tenor to that conversation, but also like the way in which like the intergenerational harm moves through mother and daughter, and especially because as I was saying earlier, where it's like women are socialized to be in caregiver roles. And like, if you've had a fraught relationship with your mother and then have to be a caregiver in any kind of capacity, like that's trouble. Uh, You mean like a caregiver for your mother? Yeah. And also like the expectation or like, even like, this is like the third or fourth time we've mentioned wild orchids, but like the fact that our Kansas girl has to take care of her mother who is constantly negging her and putting her down and that like she's relieved when her mother dies. And like, is free. I think you said in that episode that like, I'm going to get it wrong. Like it's so complicated with mothers and daughters. And that's like why men who've written movies don't get it right. Oh, Jodie Foster said she was frustrated by the fact that all women who are complex are motivated by rape when they can really just be motivated by their mother. (laughs) Right. That's the quote. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. But I, you know, it's not going to change the fact that I I am grateful I don't have a sister. I just don't think I could do it. I would have a Willow Laurel relationship. (laughs) Maybe. I think a lot of things go into being a sister. Also, it's like it's not static, you know? Right. Of course not. I only have one older brother. He's also nine years older than me. And that feels very similar to other brother-sister relationships I've seen Mm -hmm. and been privy to and been a part of. And a sister-sister relationship, it seems like a different language entirely impenetrable. And so I I think like most human beings, I am likely to understand something I don't understand as complex beyond my, you know, but I do understand a mother daughter relationship. Mm -hmm. Families are hard. Yeah. Families are hard. Can be true, but it's also like, that's also the work of being a good sister. And one of the ways that this book was kind of a failure where it's like both of us wanted Willow to apologize in the same way that we have Gideon Stone sort of reevaluate his relationship to his dead wife. In good relationships and positive relationships, like your sister can really be a very intimate teammate. Mm. And of course it's complex. Like just because you're happy for her doesn't mean you're always happy for her. Sure. Of course. But like, I think I understand that when ugly feelings arise, that they are mine and not hers. And like part of being a sister is like working through that. I think having had a sister, I'm also like deeply grateful that I had to have the experience of a sister who's also just like absolutely wonderful. And like, it does seem like she gets along with my parents better. Like I've learned a lot about myself through my relationship with my sister that I don't think I would have been I do think otherwise I would say having a brother who's nine years older I do think you know that's great my brother got nine years of being an only child which I think was different for your sister but I think there's also something of going through really difficult teen years and then also having to deal with like a toddler those that (laughs) early adolescence and then your sibling as a toddler that's a fucking suck I'm sure it did like you hate everything and then you have like this little messy loud and invariably joyful like (laughs) pudgy innocent version of yourself who like doesn't knock on the door how wretched how wretched I always say that if I had kids I would want to have them far apart but now that I'm talking through it maybe that wouldn't be the fairest thing to do totally respect my parents decisions I do not think I was planned you guys can keep lying to me all you want but extra (laughs) blessings Morgan extra blessings but like I said all the all the relationships are complex I don't think it was made up I remain unconvinced that that's not the most difficult relationship in a family I just I just don't think that having a sister relationship is any more or less fraught than having like Uh, a relationship with a mother. I hope people comment on this. I hope they (laughs) share their personal experience because I am, I am just a disinterested third party when it comes to sisters. 
I mean, it feels like you're not very disinterested when you're like, thank God I don't have well, a I mean, sister. Well, I mean, like, I don't have it. I don't have a dog in the fight, meaning I don't have a sister. But yeah, I am gracious that I don't have one because I just think it's, you know, God damn it. Like, life's complicated enough. And I think I would do especially poorly with a sister. Maybe. I mean, it would depend on the sister. But of course, like, I would have, like, grown up with a sister. So right. who knows what I would have been like if I would have exactly. adapted well or if I would have been a Laurel and a Willow. Who knows? Maybe you would have been a Jane and Elizabeth. Ugh, Jane and Elizabeth. Exactly. It's like there are enough sister relationships that are just honestly good. That's a fictional one. (sighs) Yeah. And so uh, all the March sisters. But I'm like, you know, if you're going to tell me that the Hollywoodization of like sister rivalries is like, you know, partly in truth, I'm like, I'm going to say that I know more Jane and Elizabeth's in IRL than I do Willows and Laurels. It just seems like the highs are so high and the lows are so low. Maybe. I don't know. Having never lived my life without my sister. I don't even want to put myself in a space to try to imagine my life without her is how much I value and love her. Um, My weirdest part was the (laughs) father stuff. Yeah, that was also fucking weird. So at the end of the book, he builds her a perfect house. And includes a master bedroom on the first floor. Like, there's so many details of this house in the afterward. Builds her a perfect house with a master suite on the first floor so that her father can remain to live with them. And I think this kind of speaks to the part that you said about women being expected to be caregivers because Willow Mm -hmm. is the one who comes forward and like, I felt so bad for you when you were torturing that guy. And is also like, I have to take care of my dad. My sisters won't do it. One of them's a lesbian in France. The other one's a upper middle class Lululemon mm-hmm. head and so it falls upon me the fact that the book puts all of this pressure on characters to be both good and bad to be complex and then Willow just isn't like everything she mm-hmm. does is good and right pressure is not applied to any of it like to me I'm like well she kind of allowed herself to become the martyr for their father's condition like she has totally. two other siblings and she's the only one taking care of him and we're supposed to believe it's just because one is too wrapped up in her life as a housewife that just makes Laurel seem evil you know right Mm -hmm. and further like her dad is not a very good person like we're told that he fights for her and and things like that but he's also clearly a misogynist yeah he has a drinking problem he's constantly disrespectful and ungracious for what willow is doing for him Mm-hmm. Like, why? Why does every relationship Willow has, why is it all her martyrdom? And That's it's not even question. like a likable martyrdom. Like, I don't look mm-hmm. at it and think like, oh, Willow's such a good person. I'm like, what the fuck is she doing? Like, is mm-hmm. she getting off on it? I have to assume she's getting off on it. Yeah, I mean, like, why else? Like, why does it serve her in this way? And I understand that she's neuro-non-typical and that's part of the mm-hmm. reason why she stays in this house and she has, like, uh, this really sentimental relationship relationship with it but also this need for consistency I get it mm-hmm. but like her dad just isn't a nice person but Willow also isn't a nice person like we said she doesn't apologize to her sister mm-hmm. she is weirdly like whenever our hero tells her like we're just not a good fit and tries to end the relationship suddenly mm-hmm. everyone is all up in arms against him and they're gonna mm-hmm. like kick his ass and like they're mm-hmm. not gonna let him talk to her and she gets two weeks paid vacation which use your vacation for whatever you want but don't act like it's not because of a breakup and that that's chill mm-hmm. and I think like that is so frustrating to me is that everyone gets up in arms about her and it's like well no like he told her from the beginning like this can only be a sexual relationship mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. while we were on this mission. And then afterwards, even though he lied, he was like, we're not a good fit. And she's able to be like, woe is me. I'm the victim. And not consider mm-hmm. the fact that like, you know what? He might be going through some shit. And yeah, also totally. like, maybe you're just not a good fit for him. And that's okay. You have to accept that and move on. You shouldn't have a bunch of people around you being like, he's wrong. You guys are perfect together. Like that's not healthy. No. But Willow gets all of these like really unhealthy bolsters. <laughs> throughout the novel like her sister being like I'm going to apologize to you Mm -hmm. like just double down Laurel double down tell her it's her fault which (laughs) honestly it is that she was abducted. I mean, yeah, the abduction is definitely Willow's fault. Yeah, I think that's right. And Willow is never like, 
hey, you know what? Let me just be interrogated. They're not going to kill me right away. There's going to be a trial process. She's like, fuck yeah, let's go on the run. Let's put all of my family members and loved ones in danger so that I can find the real mole. Like, let me go on this adventure. Like, there is actually a version of this story where she just works from the inside and figures Mm -hmm. it out. Like, there isn't Mm -hmm. really a reason. Like, everyone liked her. Most people trusted her. Everyone said the evidence was fishy. Like, (laughs) that's why they're able to go on the adventure, which could have easily been executed, like, within the confines of the gray box with the support and she just doesn't do it but there's never any pressure put on that idea either which Mm -hmm. is a huge plot hole for me (laughs) yeah that makes sense okay sexiest part this is a very sexy book I mean obviously the The boat sex are great yeah they are like the boat sex is great but I think one of the scenes that like tipped me over and like again that I was like genuinely surprised by was they're hanging out above this donut shop like hiding from the bad guys and they like have to like he has to buzz his hair and she has to dye her hair so they can go on the lamb and she's like finishing up her hair and like you know she's like dripping wet and there's dye on her shirt and he can see like her nipples through her bra and like there's this very hot sex scene where they just like just make out like you know and everything's really heightened and he's like I shouldn't have done that and she's like I wanted you to and I was like oh okay um I loved that because it's again it's so physical like you know she's got the hair dye dripping down and staining her shirt that was such a moment of like here's a person who's along for this ride. Like, let's see where this goes. Well, she starts There's... crying because she dyed her hair red and she do not like yeah. it. She hated it. And he's I've like, there that. you are. Yeah, I just like, and again, all of it is character building. Like, she starts crying and then he's like, you know, don't cry. Like, I see you look like, you know, there you are. Like, there are your bright, intelligent eyes. And like, you know, here's this like compassionate beating heart. And like, there's like a real scene of I see you there and then they make out. And I was like, yeah, I loved that. Speaking of I see you there... There's this part where talks about her before they like end the relationship briefly. Mm -hmm. And he tells her why he likes her. Anyways, I can't find it. But he just like gives her like a list of compliments that don't sound very verbose. They don't sound very like over the top. They just sound like clear statements of what you like about someone. And also Mm -hmm. they have that element of like, I see you. Like the parts of yourself that you want to be acknowledged by another Mm -hmm. person are presented. I think in the same way you really love a great apology I really love a great compliment Mm -hmm. and I look forward to it and this book does deliver on that but I would say my sexiest part is that first sex scene on the boat Mm -hmm. which I was not expecting the sex scenes in this book to be very good and it really (laughs) delivers as a steamy read just because the way the uh, Justice League roundtable at the beginning was handled does not bode well for two people in physical communication (laughs) with one another but it does it delivers really on that steamy aspect of it it does it really does sexy steamy it's like a real sex scene with like penises and she talks about having an iud and she changes her iud every five years you can wait longer ladies you can wait longer yeah that conversation was also a well done because it's like that's very much like uh readers are going to be concerned and she's like as long as you had a clean blood test as of may 19th as long as you haven't slept with anyone and And she like like, knew his blood test which is kind of weird but works totally weird yeah. She knew his blood test. She had an I, an IUD. There's a Go great again. scene where he's at the Walmart debating whether or not he wants to buy condoms. Yeah, that scene is so good. I love he, that scene. That was such a great scene. And also kind of a sexy part. Someone negotiating their own desires along with responsibilities. Yeah, I loved that. I thought that was such a smart scene. Yeah, it was a really smart scene. That was really well done. And also carried all the suspense, I feel. (laughs) Yeah. Is he going to get the condom? Because you feel like it's going to have huge ramifications for the rest of the book because it is a romance novel. But yeah, Mm -hmm. Juno just like paces everything so well. It's true. uh, After that first 20%. Romance or a nomance? Whoa. Total, total whoa. whoa. Big whoa. Big time Big whoa. whoa. Yeah, total whoa. Absolutely loved it. And it made me interested in potentially reading more romantic thrillers. Because I'm like, well, if this is out there, I want more of this. Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was a whoa. I didn't expect to like it as much as I did. But I will definitely recommend this to people, in fact. Me too. Me too. All right. Even with all of the icky militaristic stuff. Yeah. Which is is hard to do for us. No kidding. We truly, truly hate the military industrial complex here at Womance. That's our official stance. It is. And we We also also hate capitalism. Yeah. I was like, we don't like private jets either. You know, like fucking think about that shit. 
And then like, you know, don't put a drill bit into somebody's kneecap. Don't outsource our national security to private <laughs> industry. Don't outsource our educate. Just invest in. Like, that's the thing. People are like, oh, like they can do more with the money. It's like, well, the U.S. government's paying them anyways, our tax dollars. Yeah, they're all fucking private contractors. What if we just like put that money into like, you know. Right. Our <laughs> fucking infrastructure. Fixed by potholes. Install my streetlights correctly. They got those fixed, by the way. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it's a little bit better. Uh, Just in time for quarantine. All right. Well, with that. Loosen your stays. Never your principles. Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabeau. That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frog podcast network discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast until next week Mwah.